Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Keep trucking through. Noah and the Flood, it's one of those stories that the whole world knows. There's been numerous secular movies made on the subject. Children's pajamas and nursery decorations. You just turn the corner and take a look. They got two different versions in that nursery there. Uh, There's toys on it, video games, not to mention the myriad of songs about it. Noah and the Ark, it's common parlance. For example, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, all the news press refers to it as the Noah's Ark of Seeds. However, most people have an incomplete or incorrect recollection of the story. And can you fault them? If their exposure to the flood is coming from Hollywood and popular culture, of course they won't know the truth. On the church end of things, we tend to oversimplify and reduce it to just a story for children. There's much more than the Lord telling Noah that there's going to be a floody, floody, so you need to build an arky, arky. It's important for us to know the whole story, not just the cute parts. We are all descendants of Noah. We are all under the covenant God gave to Noah. And Jesus even likens his second coming to that of the flood. Furthermore, the ark shows God's mercy and protection towards us. It is an example that God will always preserve a remnant that God is merciful to humanity. Chapter 5 of Genesis is the genealogy of Noah. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read through it all tonight, um, but instead just go over some of the truths held within it. Scholars uh, speculate that this chapter was its own book at some point in time because the opening line of chapter 5 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Elsewhere in Genesis, whenever genealogies are laid out, they always start with, these are the generations of X. They don't ever start with, this is the book of the, and then the line. So I don't think that this invalidates Genesis or even supposes that Genesis is the synthesis of multiple stories and sources. Um, I take it to mean that chapter 5 was also a standalone work that people could read separate from the rest of Genesis. And we have other spots in the Bible where it quotes works outside of itself, such as the book of Jasher, if you're going reading Joshua or Second Samuel. So referencing outside books doesn't negate or invalidate the truth of the Bible. Another thing to note is instead of it saying, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered Seth, Genesis 5.3 says, when Adam had lived 130 years, He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. This is to make it very clear that this new line comes forth through Seth and not Cain. And it mirrors the language used in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So being a biological son is not enough. Seth needed to have a heart like Adam and serve God. With this genealogy, we have a pattern that you see through all through chapter 5. It goes, when X lived A years old, he fathered Y. X lived after he fathered Y, B years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of X were C years, and he died. We see this for all but Enoch, and instead of he died, we read, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is further proof that the line of Seth is the godly line and that the line of Cain that we read in chapter 4 is the ungodly. And then we have another pattern break at the end with Noah. At his birth, Lamech, not the same Lamech as chapter 4. This is the good one, not the bad one. Uh, Lamech says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name means rest. And as you can imagine, having to work the ground decade after decade 
century after century, would grow tiresome. We were always meant to work. However, after the fall, creation now fights against us. Can you imagine having to weed your garden every year for multiple centuries? I would want some relief from that, too. And the, gene, uh, the, the genealogy ends with Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we see that Lamech's prophecy will be fulfilled by God through the flood. Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This is one of the more tricky passages of the Bible. Who are these sons of God? There's two major views on this, and both of these views are thousands of years old. One view is that the sons of God are fallen angels. This view uses the book of Job for justification. The phrase sons of God in Job is used in a manner that would suggest angels. For example, in Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. To me, that's clearly referencing angels. However, there are some that argue that because the actual word for angel is used later in Job, that sons of God elsewhere in Job can be left ambiguous or be referring to things that aren't angels. Uh, and we see this in the verse um, Job 4.18. Even in his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with air. So I don't think this is a very strong argument, um, since the, refer the other references in Job to sons of God are in situations that clearly no human would have been in. And also, Job is a poetic book, so using synonyms would not be an irregular occurrence. However, elsewhere in the Bible, sons of God is used, and it's clearly referring to humans. Um, Luke's genealogy of Jesus ends with Adam being called a son of God. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Clearly, Adam is not an angel, yet he is being referenced to as a son of God. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is talking to humans and giving advice to humans, not angels. In Galatians we read, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Is Paul writing to angels in this letter? No, he's writing to the Galatians, who are clearly human. Um, so proponents of this fallen angel theory, though, They'll be quick to point out that these passages calling humans sons of God are all in the New Testament. However, in the Old Testament, phrases similar to sons of God are used when referring to humans. And this is in Hosea. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not by people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Another argument against sons of God being fallen angels is that angels don't marry and procreate. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Additionally, whenever fallen angels or demons are mentioned in the Bible, they are not depicted as having a manifest body. Most frequently, they're described as possessing or inhabiting someone, such as the man at Capernaum or the slave girl at Philippi. And they can even dwell in animals, as we see when Jesus cast the demons out in the gardeness when they beg him to put them in the pig herd. So Jesus uses his physical body to prove to the disciples that he's not a spirit slash demon slash fallen angel. This is Luke 24, 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So here Jesus is demonstrating that he's not a spirit by showing them that he has an actual physical body. So if fallen angels don't have bodies, how then could they marry human women? The other viewpoint of sons of God refers to the line of Seth and uh, their offspring. And to me, this argument makes sense because chapter 4 ends with the genealogy of the ungodly and sin. Chapter 5 is a genealogy of righteousness and faith. Then immediately following that is our phrase, sons of God. Contextually, it makes more sense to, uh, to me than to bring in fallen angels, since at this point in the Bible, the only mention of angels is the cherubim guarding the entrance to Eden. The end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 is full of references to godly men. With context and Jesus' use of sons of God to refer to godly people, I am more inclined to hold the Sethite view rather than the fallen angel view of Genesis 6. And again, with this issue, it's not a uh, make-or-break Christianity viewpoint. And if people haven't decided all through the early days of the church and all through church history what view it is, uh, tonight we're not going to be able to uh, pick one side or the other and probably have everybody on one or the other. So if you feel different than the, differently than me, that's all right. All right. In chapter 5, we hear the phrase, and other sons and daughters with each patriarch. This shows that there was more children from the Sethite line than the men listed. And under the Sethite view, these unnamed sons who were born... Uh, into these godly families, they were enticed by the world and chose to live with the ungodly. They turned away from the faith of their fathers to please their own flesh. Genesis 6.3 Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days sh shall be 120 years. Again, this is another passage where there's two different main viewpoints that people have. Um, both viewpoints agree that God is declaring that, that man is immortal, I mean, sorry, immoral, and the action shall be taken against them. One view is that the, his day shall be 120 years is a countdown until the flood, a doomsday clock of sorts. The other view is that it refers to the longevity of man. Um, with the antediluvian figures, we have very large ages. Adam was 930. Seth 912, and so on with Methuselah setting the record at 969 years old. After the flood, we see ages dropping with each generation. Shem 600, uh, Aphrodax Afri uh, 438, Selah 433, etc., until Terah at uh, age 205. <coughs> so for me, I'm more inclined to accept the view that the, his days shall be 120 years to be more of the longevity than a countdown to the flood. <clears throat> Especially since in chapter 5, Lamech says that Noah is going to bring relief from work and toil. God reducing man from hundreds and hundreds of years to 120 years is not a punishment, but rather a mercy. Just think on those days that you get up and you go, oh, I really don't want to go to work. Now imagine instead of going to work for 60 years, you're going to work for 600 years. So that's why I, I'm saying that the, the reducing the age is not a, not a punishment, but it's a, it's a mercy. Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, another tricky passage, and we're just here on verse 4 of this chapter. So depending on your view of what the sons of God are, the Nephilim will be interpreted differently. 
Many, but not all, of those that believe the fallen angel view, they see the Nephilim as human-angel hybrids. Um, They view this perversion as the main reason for having the flood. The major sticking point for that view, though, is that the text clearly says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. If the flood is to destroy them, how are they still on the earth afterwards, that is, at the time of the writing of Genesis? Also, why would these hybrids be called men of renown and mighty men if they were not fully human? So what does Nephilim mean? Let's derive from the Hebrew verb to fall, and it can be translated as fallen ones. We only see Nephilim in two places in the Bible, Genesis 6-4 that we just read and Numbers 13-33. This reference to the Nephilim in Numbers is when the spies are giving their report. Numbers 13, 30 through 33. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So this passage is why some translations, such as the uh, Septuagint and others derived from it, like the King James Version, render the word Nephilim as giants. They made the assumption that since the spies described themselves as grasshoppers compared to them, that they must be giants. I don't think this is a good assumption. Think of the most famous giant. Think in your head here. Goliath, right? That's probably who you're thinking. He's not described as being a son of of Anak or as being a Nephilim. Same thing with King Og. Both of them were at least nine feet tall. It's a giant in my mind. But yet, they were never called sons of Anak or a Nephilim. So if a Nephilim should be synonymous with gigantism, why are these two famous giants not described as such? Dr. Peter uh, Gentry of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he's a believer in the fallen angel view of the sons of God, but he believes that the Nephilim are purely human and that the discussion of them in proximity to the sons of God is Moses demythologizing the Nephilim. He argues that the inclusion of the Nephilim is to make clear to the Israelites that they are not byproducts of human-angel relations, but that they are simply human. Dr. Gentry has a great explanation of this view, so I'm going to quote him directly here. Here's the start of the quote. When it says, they were there in those days and also afterward, It means that the Nephilim were there before angels cohabitated with humans, and they were there after uh, angels cohabitated with humans. The last sentence says they were the heroes who were from the ancient past, the men of renown. This sentence does not begin with and. Now that is very, very important. Almost every sentence in the Hebrew Bible begins with and. When a sentence does not begin with and, it does so for two reasons. It could be because it's beginning a new section, or secondly, because it's making a comment on the previous sentence, what we would call a footnote. It is very clear that this sentence is not beginning a new section, but it's acting like a footnote on the previous sentence. So the previous sentence is saying that the Nephilim were before, and there before angels and humans cohabitated, and were there afterward. And it's making a brief comment that they were the ancient heroes. In this case, what Moses is doing is he's demythologizing the Nephilim. You notice one of the things that we should notice is the text doesn't tell us who the Nephilim were. What does that mean? Why doesn't the text tell us who they were? Because they were well known to the first readers of this text. The first readers of this text knew who the Nephilim were and didn't need that explained to them. And all Moses is saying is, look, Whoever you think these heroes are, like Gilgamesh, these ancient heroes, these men of renown, you've read about them in the ancient mythologies. Whoever they were, they're not part of this story. 
They don't come from the cohabitation of angels and humans, and I think that's the correct interpretation. The end of his quote there. Um, he was an Old Testament professor. And I think that Dr. Gentry's explanation is the most reasonable, and it works even if you don't think that the sons of God are fallen angels but Sethites. Which brings us to then the next point. Why do you why name them Nephilim if they are not fallen angels? Well, fallen ones could also refer to those who have fallen away from God. So the, who are the sons of God and who are the Nephilim? It will continue to be debated just as it has for all church history, but it's not a salvific, salvific issue and it shouldn't cause division in the church. It's one of those agree to disagree if you meet people who don't feel the same way as you. All right, now to more clear things in chapter 6. Yes, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. And that's just uh, transliterating from the Hebrew into English. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intuition of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mankind continues to degrade. Notice that it's not just the outward action of man that displeases God, but his thoughts as well. God has always cared what's within our heart, not just our actions and outward appearance. Remember the words of Jesus. You have heard it said, uh, sorry, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. God's expectations has always been such that he cares about our thoughts and our intents. And this passage here in Genesis is proof of that. God wants our heart, thoughts, and intentions to be pure. When humanity moved to the point of continual evil in their thoughts, God was grieved. God then says that he will destroy his creation. In a reversal of the creation story, God will cover the earth with water rather than separating the waters to create life. And although he is going to blot out life, he will keep a remnant. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the Old Testament, besides Noah, this phrase is only used in reference to Noah. I mean, in reference to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Noah, like Moses, was a righteous man who proclaimed God's word. While not in Genesis, we have evidence for Noah's preaching in 2 Peter 2.5, where he is called a herald of righteousness. Because of his relationship with God, both he and his family were spared. We never see any mention of Noah's sons being righteous and blameless, yet they still benefit from the mercy given to Noah. It's a good reminder to us that our actions and relationship with God do have a consequence and effect on our families for both good and bad. Genesis 6, 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, uh, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. 
Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Yet again, God is stating his reason for flooding the earth. People have been corrupt and violent. My speculation as to why the reasoning for the flood is given so many times in the text is to make it absolutely clear to the Israelites and us as the future readers of Genesis that God's condemnation and destruction of life on earth was not without just cause. Many cultures have a great flood story, which is understandable considering that we all descend from Noah. However, the kernel of truth about the flood has been painted over with each society's culture. For example, in Hawaiian mythology, Nu'u builds a large boat with a house on it. He escapes a great flood in his boat with his wife and three sons. He then lands his boat on top of Mauna Kea, and makes a sacrifice of food to the moon as thanks for saving him. The Hawaiian creator god Kane then descends to earth on a rainbow to tell Nu'u that it was actually him that saved him, and he goes and takes the sacrifice with him. Does that story sound familiar to you? There are hundreds of flood stories from many cultures, but the one that the Israelites would have been exposed to would have been that of Utnapishna in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh. It was very popular at the time um, that the Israelites were going to Canaan, and it had even been translated from Akkadian into other languages such as Hittite. Everyone in the ancient Near East knew about the Epic of Gilgamesh. However, in this story, Enlil wants to flood the world because humans are too noisy. Enki warns Utnapishnam and gives him instructions on how to build a boat to survive the flood. That's a big difference between the Bible and Gilgamesh, though, is with Gilgamesh, the world's going to be destroyed for petty reasons, and Utnapishnam is just chosen arbitrarily. By reiterating that God's flood uh, of the world is because of man's sinful heart and that Noah was preserved for his godliness, it makes it clear that God is not fickle like the invented God of man's stories and myths. So what is gopher wood? Carpenter, you know gopher wood? Is it at Home Depot? (laughs) So what is gopher wood? As a kid, I always wondered that. And to me, it makes me think of the animal. And so what does gophers have to do with wood and lumber? Absolutely nothing. It's just a coincidence. Um, Gopher, it only appears in Genesis 6.14, and no one's found it in any other ancient Hebrew texts. So no one knows how to properly translate it, but many guesses have been made. In the Septuagint, they translated it as square timber. The Vulgate trans- translated it as planed wood. Both of those ancient translations are making guesses and assumptions based on the context. Some modern scholars make the assumption that it should be cypress wood. And this started with the Wesleyan theologian Adam Clark. He explains his reasoning in his commentaries, which are all online. Um, but... I don't agree with him because Hebrew has a separate word for cypress wood. If you have the word for it, why wouldn't you use it? Regardless, his idea, for lack of a better word, has taken root. You'll see gopher wood translated as cypress wood in the NIV, NLT, NET, NRSV, the HPB, and the ICB, among others. Some translations of gopher wood are real off the wall, such as the message saying that it's teak wood. Maybe making the assumption that 
modern boats use teak wood, so that old one would use teak wood. And the CEV um, says good lumber. The CEB just sidesteps the whole issue and translates the whole passage as make a wooden ark. So why do a lot of Bibles say go for wood? Because we don't know what it means, so we just leave it untranslated. And when you pronounce it, it comes out as gopher. So that leaves us with two options of what exactly it is. Either gopher is an extinct tree that we don't know about, or it was an older word used for a tree that we do know. And we just forgot that that was what they called that particular tree. Another semantic thing here, what is an ark? If you go and you grab a dictionary and you look up the English definition of ark, spelled A-R-K, the definition comes up as a boat or ship held to resemble that in which Noah and his family were preserved from the flood. So not real helpful. We're calling it Noah's Ark and then defining it as the thing that Noah was in. Other European languages, they also use Ark or variations of it. And I looked up their definitions, and they say things like it was Noah's ship or Noah's boat and so on. So apparently it's been agreed upon to, re- to translate the Hebrew word Teba as Ark and also to define it as Noah's boat. What exactly is Teba? It's used in the Bible in Genesis, referring to the vessel that Noah was on during the flood, and it also appears in Exodus 2 when it's describing the basket that Moses floated in down the river. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, you'll see ark in both cases there. The translators just kept the translation of Teba as ark for both Noah and Moses in the reeds. So Teba... In Hebrew, it just means box. So how did we get from that it's a box to us calling it an ark? You can blame the Romans. Arca is the Latin word for box. And we inherited that word from Old English, who took it from Old Germanic, which they took it from Latin. So that's why all the European languages call it an ark, is because they're all just stealing the Latin word for box which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew word teba. Which brings us to our next question. What exactly is a cubit, and how big is this boat anyways? So if you're reading a dynamic equivalence, such as the NLT or the CSB, you're in an advantage, because instead of reading that it was 300 cubits, you're going to see imperial units instead. So the, uh, the NIV... Sorry, uh, NLT and CSB, um, they've done the math for you. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high with an 18-inch opening below the roof. This is assuming you're using an 18-inch cubit, the distance between the elbow and the tip of your middle finger. Right, That's a cubit. And so this, these translators are assuming an 18-inch cubit. The reason they got that number is that's the average cubit size in the ancient Near East based on archaeological evidence. However, there's also Egyptian royal cubits, which are slightly longer at 20.5 inches. And tombs that have been excavated in Jerusalem, they've found different rooms and they've measured them, and they've found that they've built them to both standards. So they would measure the room, and then you know they divide by 18 and found that it was perfect numbers if you used cubits. But then other rooms they found used this long, longer Egyptian royal cubit, and when you do its math using the long cubit, the room then also has the perfect numbers. So even back then, builders liked to do things with regular numbers, so they would build a room, you know, 8 by 8 cubits, whereas today... You know, our, we like to build things by the size of the sheet of our lumber. Same thing back then. People haven't really changed. If you've got a standard, you just use it and build to it. And so what they found in Jerusalem is using both the 18-inch and the 20-and-a-half-inch cubit in their buildings. Um, and then in Second Chronicles 3.3, 3, we see evidence that the Hebrews 
use two different size cubits. So we've got the archaeological evidence and in the Bible referencing. It says, these are Solomon's measurement for the building of the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits and the breadth 20 cubits. So old standard, that implies that there's a new standard, which means you've got two standards. Additionally, in Ezekiel, we see that a long cubit is being referred to and used. Long cubit is just another term for royal cubit. So which cubit did Noah use? Well, people are making the assumption that Noah was using the standard cubit that the ancient Near East used. So if you use the long cubit, however, the ark is going to be bigger. So depending on how you do your math, the ark could be anywhere from 450 to 512 and a half feet long. Bible translators, they like to play it safe, and they do 18 inches. But the ark encounter in Kentucky, when they built a replica ark, they used the long cubit. So why are these dimensions of the ark important? It's important because knowing its size can prove that it's possible to house the animals and be seaworthy. The size of the ark is at the upper limits of what is possible to build with wood and have it not fall apart on you but still big enough that you can house all the animals and supplies that you're going to need. So God instructs Noah to bring two of every kind into the ark and bring food for them. How can we fit them all in with how many species that we see today? Well, we need to remember that our species do not equal the Hebrew kind. Hebrew taxonomy, it's not like the modern taxonomy we're using. In our modern taxonomy, we break elephants down into three separate species. we got African bush, African forest, and Asian. To the Hebrews, it's just one kind. It's just elephant. So Noah wouldn't need to bring six elephants on the ark. He'd just need to bring two. We also, in our modern days, we break bears down into eight different species. The Hebrews, they would have just said bear. The kind is bear. And... um, We have many varieties within kind today through natural selection, speciation, and artificial selection. So as time progressed and animals moved to different environments after the flood, those those whose bodies and abilities allowed them to survive the natural uh, climate there, they survived and bred and passed on their genetic information to the next. Those creatures that can't survive, they don't reproduce, their genetics are lost. You keep repeating this over the years, and you end up with different variety of animals that all came from the same ancestor that came off the ark. Now, this is not evolution. There's no new genetic material being added. In fact, it's the opposite. Genetic information is being lost in this case. We see this evidenced more quickly through artificial selection, and that's when we as humans decide which animals will mate with each other. The French bulldog would not exist in nature, But we as humans, for reasons unbeknownst to me, have bred them that way. By mating dogs with the same traits to each other, uh, with the same traits to each other over and over, the Frenchie was born. Genetic information from the wolf was whittled uh, away little by little until all that was left is a dog that has trouble breathing. In nature, the speciation, it's not been quite as dramatic as what we've done to dogs and uh, chicken and other poultry and things like that. So take Alaska, for example. We've got the three different bears here, polar, grizzly, and black bear. They all have their separate biome that they live in. However, they're still able to meet with each other, and we see this evidence through the different hybrids that hunters and other hikers have found. So they're all one kind, but they've diverged into what we now call the species. To the Hebrews, they would just call it one kind. So if you reduce the species on Earth into kinds, people estimate that only 1,400 to 8,000 kinds were needed to bring on the boat. Could all of those fit on the ark? Yes. Remember that there are three decks to the ship, and it's nearly three football fields long. Additionally, for larger animals, such as an elephant or rhinoceros, you could bring the juvenile. 
if you're going to bring these animals to mate and repopulate the earth, why would you bring an old, full-sized one? You bring the young ones that are on the cusp of sexual maturity instead. You're going to bring a smaller, younger elephant. You're not going to bring the big, huge bull with the super long tusks onto the ark with you. All right. We can get through Genesis 7 here in the time we've got, I think. Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in, which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God has commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and the creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days." So mirroring the creation accounts, the flood also has two tellings. And just as the case with Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's not because there's two separate sources that were combined together. Rather, the second telling is to give additional information. We learn now that in addition to bringing each pair of uh, animals, Noah is commanded to bring seven pairs of each clean animal. If you're going to make sacrifices to the Lord and repopulate the planet, you're going to need to bring extra animals with you. As is the case with Cain and Abel making sacrifices, the command to bring clean animals shows us that the knowledge of which animals are fit for proper sacrifice have already been given to mankind. This implies that the list of clean and unclean animals in Leviticus is not a new revelation, but a reminder. Having clean animals referenced before the instruction of Leviticus is not an error of the Bible. Not every revelation given by God is recorded. Enoch walked with God over 300 years before being spared death and taken to heaven, yet we only have a few sentences about him. Surely during those centuries, he would have learned much about God as he followed his ways. The same thing with Jesus and his time on earth. We are explicitly told that he did more than what was written down in the Gospels. This is uh, in John 21, 25. 
Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Then we have the animals, they come into the ark. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives interlast, and God seals up the ark. Even though it was Noah's hands that built the ark, only through God's power are the animals brought together and the ark closed up. His protection is with Noah before the flooding begins. It shows that man alone cannot escape the judgment of God, but that only with God's help and mercy can one be saved. Once safely in the ark, the heavens bring forth rain and the earth itself opens up to release water. This is most likely the, cla- the cause of the plate tectonic movements that we experience today, especially in Anchorage, right? In 1596, mapmaker Abraham Ortelius, he suggested that North and South America were, quote, torn away from Europe and Africa by earthquakes and floods. The vestiges of the rupture reveal themselves if someone brings forward a map of the world and considers carefully the coasts. Okay. And then in 1858, Antonio uh, Snyder Pellegrini, he proposed that today that all the continents we have were connected together in the past, but that they broke apart during the flood of Noah. He used matching plant fossils in both Europe and North America as his proof that they were the same thing connected, just broken apart. Yet, continental drift was not accepted by the scientific community until the 1960s. The flood describes the Bible. Uh, the flood is described by the Bible. It created major changes on the earth. Through God's judgment, the whole earth was covered in water, and all creatures on the land died. This is creation in reverse. We go from life on dry land to water covering the land, leading to no life. So much water was on the earth that it covers the tops of the highest mountains by at least 22 and a half feet. There is no way that any land creature could survive this flood without God's protection and mercy. Because of man's sin, all of creation is affected. Did the lion turn away from the will of God? No, they did not, but yet they were also caught up in man's judgment. As it says in Romans, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Because of the evils of man's heart, God exacted judgment and provided a way to begin anew. We are once again coming to a time where God will judge the earth. Again, God will provide mercy to those who follow him. And like Noah, we need to serve him, proclaim his truths, and keep our faith in God. Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And then Revelation 21, 1 through 4, and 22, verse 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and his servants will worship him. So we should not fear the coming judgment. Noah did not fear the judgment of his world. Instead, we should rejoice in the mercies that God bestows to us and delight that he is our Savior and Deliverer. We should anticipate his glory and that he will remove the curse of sin from us and the world. Through his judgments, God is always merciful. Thank you. I know that was a lot to, to throw at you guys. So thank you for your uh, time today.
Um, we do have a couple minutes, um, so if you would like to, if anyone has questions or uh, you have a point you want to bring up, we can do that now. Correct. Correct. And the sea creatures are never mentioned as being killed. Well, there's there would there's not the, the the mutants. I'm saying the the one view is that it's it's angels is the sons of God, and the other view the other view is that it's the godly line of people that some of those that came out of that godly line instead of following God went and uh, turned basically turned their back to God and, and went with the world and so uh, you know worship false gods and things like that. That's that's what some people say. They 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 say that Nephilim is giants and I make the case that they're not giants. Yeah, that 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 uh part of people thinking Nephilim is giant is in the book of Enoch, they are described as giants, um, but that's not canonical or anything like that. And so I don't, I don't reference book of Enoch. But that's where some people get some of the theories of that. Oh, this should be this and that. Um, but in the Bible, when Jesus is saying. Uh, that you guys concern yourself with endless genealogies, um, that's referring to Book of Enoch, because in Book of Enoch there's genealogies of angels and lots of lists of genealogy of angels and things like that. So when Jesus is saying, don't concern yourself with these endless genealogies and myths, that's basically what he's saying. He's saying, you don't need to be reading that. That's... That's not what you need to be focusing on, and that's not important. So, yes, those those ones appear bodily, but they are not. They're, well, they're not fallen angels, and that's the thing is that uh, they are there serving God, and so they end up having this this form like the, the the three that go to Abraham and they actually eat with him but whenever there is uh, talk of angels that are not serving God or on a mission from God it's always they're always inhabiting somebody or it's a spirit such as like well it doesn't explicitly say spirit it says Satan tempted Jesus but it never makes any mention that he was physically there um, Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But it, but again, that's there. Those are not the fallen angels. Any time you see fallen angels, they're always uh, not having a body and having to do things like possessing somebody or being within something. I have not heard of Dr. Dino.
Yeah, but in those cases, like with um, coming to get Lot to leave Sodom or visiting Abraham or even uh, things like rolling the, the stone of the tomb away, those were all angels serving God. But whenever there's angels not serving God, they do, if you look through the Bible, whenever there's one not serving God, they don't have their own body. And so I don't know if that's part of, of their punishment is that they can't uh, manifest the way angels can when they are serving God. Um, but, yeah, whenever there's angels not serving God, um, they're always inhabiting something else. They're not independent. And so, like, when the disciples, they're scared, and they think it's a spirit walking on the water, well, when they see that it's physically Jesus there, oh, not a spirit, it's Jesus. I see his body. You know, and the same thing when Jesus came back there and he's proving to them, he's like, here, look at my hands, my feet. And he even eats with them, showing like, look, I am, I'm not an evil spirit here that's trying to confuse you or trick you. Well, there's Nephilim mentioned before and after the flood. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, that's that's why I don't adhere to the view that that all giants are descended from these human angel hybrids because um, the Bible clearly says that there's before and after the flood, and so after the flood, everyone's having to come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it's coming from them. They had normal human wives, and so all humanity after that has to come from them. And so you've got giants after them. That's why I don't, I don't buy into the thing that the, the Nephilim are connected with the sons of God and daughters of men, whether you think they're both human or, an, or angel human, because after the flood, you're just, it, everybody's coming from those three brothers because Noah doesn't have any more. Uh, children after that. So th- it's all, everyone's descending from those three. And that's part of the the next uh, lesson is we see how the different brothers move to different parts of the world and end up starting different cultures there. Um, I think a lot of times people, they the idea of hybrids with humans is exciting and fantastical and so some people really latch on to that um it sort of has the fantastical nature to it um i'm more into the line that it's it's using that as poetic language that people that were raised right turned away from god and clung to the world because you see that evidenced today you see some families where they're it's a godly family and you've got the one brother that just turned away completely, you know, doesn't believe this and that. Or you've got some families where all the children do. And so I think it's more of a case of that where um, you had some that were very godly in the family, but others that turned away.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I think I'll end with a prayer, and that way we can save the nursery workers down there and let them release the hounds. Lord, we thank you that uh, you always provide uh, mercy and that you are just in your ways and that uh, even though this earth is going to pass away, that you are going to preserve those who trust in you and believe in you. And we thank you that you've given us salvation and a way to be serving you and worshiping you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Yep, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.